Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 80. This is Deb Falzoy, and this week I talk with Delirious Montanez, who is a federal whistleblower from El Paso, Texas, and she talks about her experience with the U.S. Border Control and what she's done, all the obstacles she's faced in trying to fight this and expose the corruption going on the years-long fight this has entailed and where she is now. Are you ready to hear Delirious's story? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. I'm Deb with Dignity Together, and I'm here with Advocate Delirious, and we are uh, here to, to share your story of workplace abuse. So welcome so much. Thank you for uh, your willingness to share your story. And um, let's get right into it. I want to like start with kind of a backgrounder of, you know, what it is that you did for work, you know, whether it's, you can talk about just the industry in general and the specific role, but like, what was... What was happening before the abuse began? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on Dignity Together podcast with you, Deb. I think that what you're doing is amazing because we do need change in our communities and in our workplace. Uh, So to give you a little bit of background, I am from Puerto Rico. I'll be 51 years old, even though I don't look like it. And I served 29 years in the Army Reserves. And my trade was a logistician. So I am a multinational joint logistics. And I retired back in July, 2019 from the Army Reserves. And then um, at the same time, I was working for Department of Homeland Security under Customs and Border Protection before it was known as United States Border Patrol before the 9-11. And then they merged the departments and then we became Customs and Border Protection. And I retired from there in November, 2020 after 21 years of service. Uh, I was sort of like forced to retire uh, because of an incident that happened with a management official that I have had, that I have filed discrimination against since like, I want to say 2012. So we're in 2021. So this seems like decades, like a century of fighting against corruption, wrongdoing, uh, misconduct from the same individuals that's supposed to have our back. So what was it like? Can you talk about like what it was like leading up to like the first bullying incident that you noticed? And then and then you can just kind of get right into it if you want. What what the bullying was like or what the abuse was like, what the discrimination was like, what was what started to happen? Well, the first time, so I joined United States Border Patrol back in 2000. And then uh, it became Customs and Border Protection, I want to say maybe 2003, 2004. So the first memorandum for record that I filed internally with the agency was around 2001, 2002 against another management official. This time was a female. Well, the department didn't do anything. Um, And then we used to work rotating shifts. 
So management officials will move, agents will move. So sometimes I will work under her, sometimes I didn't. But back then, I mean, I remember one year, I wanna say maybe 2000 and maybe 2011 or so, I actually had a calendar and I used to like, we used to be like 50 a manpower on a shift. And I remember writing the names of my coworkers on a calendar. And on their birthday, I will give them either a cup of coffee or an item from some of the businesses that I'm involved with. Um, and then I will exchange them, you know, if they were male or they were female. Um, I remember us texting throughout the night, you know, because there were some nights that they were very slow work-wise. So that was a way for us to stay awake and, you know, for us to pass the time. I remember having breakfast with coworkers after, you know, our shift. And, you know, we would talk about what happened throughout the night and events, you know, to come up. I remember chatting, like shit chatting with my peers or certain management officials before the shift muster, before the beginning of the shift. Uh, I remember the normal conversations with my coworkers and some of the management officials. So before in the discrimination and the harassment and the persecution, the retaliation, uh, the bullying, uh, what I found out to be mobbing later on because I was not aware of the, of the word, you know, it was good. It was, I mean, I used to look forward to go to work. Um, I remember whenever I had my journeyman and they used to say, well, you know, because they were very disgruntled. And I never understood why. And they said to me, one day you will realize what we are the way we are. So it is a toxic culture. It is a behavior. It's a cultural social issue that's happening. And it's not just on my workplace. I mean, I see it on the, in the military. I see it on corporate America. And I think that it's a problem as a nation, as a whole. What started happening? What, what were like the first signs that, that you could see that like verified the, the disgruntled, you know, the kind of jaded um, feelings of your coworkers? What, what started to happen to you personally? So um, back in 2001, 2002, the first time that I found my first discrimination uh, internal memorandum with my patrol agent in charge was against a female supervisor that happens to be married to another male supervisor assigned to the same shift, to the same station, same sector. And the problem was the fair and equal treatment. Uh, she will play favoritism with some of the coworkers and management that never did anything. And then I had the um, advantage that I was in the army reserves. So whenever things were getting, were, were starting to get bad or worse at the border patrol, you know, I could either work on my military weekend or I will do extra during the military. So I kind of like try to get away from the workplace, hoping that whenever I came back, things will get better. That was the way for me to cope with the issues that I was dealing. 
And then uh, 2010, uh, post 9-11, I was mobilized with the Army Reserves from 2003 to 2005. So those two years, I didn't have um, any engagement with the agency or any management officials except human resources doing my timesheets and stuff like that. And then I came back. And then like around 2006, I decided to go to, uh, to a training and then I get injured. This, this was with uh, Customs and Border Protection at the time. And there were, um, I was not put on uh, reasonable accommodations or anything like that, but there were three physicians that recommended the agency modifications on the vehicles. So my injuries were not aggravated or I did not incur any other injury. So on 2011, I reached out to the union, which is the American Federation Government Employees, which is the labor union for the federal agents or federal employees. And uh, they got involved and then we went to arbitration because of course management didn't want it to do what the doctors were telling them to do. They thought that they were like doctors themselves without even having a degree. And uh, whenever we went to arbitration, even though the arbitrator told officials, you know, I don't understand why you're not following, you know, the recommendations from these physicians. Um, so even though I didn't win the arbitration, the arbitrator spoke in front of the union uh, and the attorney to try to solve the problem, right? And then we had this specific management official that have come from another station, another sector. He used to be a canine handler. And I don't know if his dog passed away and he became a management official in my station and then he decided to transfer to El Paso. I don't know the whole story behind that. But I can tell you since that management official arrived to our station, things gotten a lot worse. And the agents, my peers knew it, management official knew it, but they never took care of the problem, right? So. The way, like in the military, you respect the rank. You don't have to respect the person, but you have to respect the rank. So that's what I did for the longest time with him. You know, I would try to avoid him uh, just to avoid any issues because I have already noticed, you know, the type of behavior that he was displaying with my coworkers and myself. So 2012, um, there, was a, there was another management official that he kind of like colluded. And this management official uh, has been at the station since I joined the Border Patrol back in 2000. And he got an Article 15 from the military for misconduct. And I think that, I don't know if he had something against the government or maybe some sort of being mad or disgruntled because of what happened to him that he wanted to, I don't know, to this, you know, to, um, you know, to do the same thing with the uh, subordinates under him. So both of them sort of like colluded. And then whenever I noticed what was happening, because I would share it with other management officials and they thought that I was crazy. They thought that, well, that's not happening. You know, he's a superstar, you know, very well liked management official by management. And the thing of the matter was that they were, uh, he wouldn't even, he couldn't even pass the test to become a management official. And management officials were grooming him, you know, to become a management official. And whenever uh, I met him at the beginning, we were agents, 
You know, he was an agent just like me. And we used to chat. And whenever he became a management official, you know, I think that the rank went over his head. And, you know, like he thought that it was better than anybody else. My peers knew it, management official knew it. They never did anything about it. And then the labor union at my local, you know, there were some stewards that were very uh, disgruntled towards the agency. And then they kind of like took advantage that management officials had it against me. And one of them was very disrespectful to me in front of my uh, other peers and senior agents. And I, I put him on the spot. So I told the supervisor, I called the supervisor, the supervisor called the patrol agent in charge or the acting commander for the, for the ship. And then he came over, but of course, all management officials are scared of this local steward, right? So to avoid issues, they basically told him, you know, uh, do this, don't do it again, kind of like a slap on his, on his hand. So he's kind of like, um, I compare it, I compare the individual with a lion, right? Uh, like he's kind of like uh, the head of this corrupted group of folks. And then he started like getting the other agents colluding with what he was trying to do until he got the other management officials to do the same. So 2015, I filed a discrimination case because of the negligence from the management officials that I have filed against. I even requested to talk with the patrol agent in charge at the time. And the patrol agent in charge basically ignored me because things continue to be the same. So I spent basically my entire career fighting for people to do the right thing. And it is just an uphill battle with the agency. And then the council that they have, you know, they don't have nothing better to do than to protect the agency. Human resources and the equal opportunity representative, they get, they get bonuses, they get bonuses to close cases against the agency. Isn't that crazy? You know, um, the EEO representative supposed to be there to kind of like hang walk the agent through the process for the EEOC to take, you know, to take the case and have an administrative judge to review the case. That's how the process, that's how the program should supposed to work. But in reality, it doesn't happen that way. So, that discrimination case 2015, and then I, I went again out with the military and then I came back and things continue to be the same. So I had to file another discrimination case and then they combined the cases. So it was regarding pay, you know, they were violating the veteran, the, um, I, I can't remember right now what is the law, but it's for, uh, it protects the veterans in the Army Reserves or the National Guard, whenever they have to go and do duty, and then they come to work, like employment rights. So I got an attorney, he's an employment attorney. And then needless to say, you know, you talk about conspiracy, you know, no, this is not conspiracy. These things do happen because I have observed them myself. Uh, somehow, they, they uh, because the administrative, area right was exhausted and then they denied my case and then i was going to do an appeal but somehow they managed to get my 
attorney out of my case for a little while. And they knew that one, I didn't have the money. And two, I wasn't going to get another counsel to start with the whole story again. You know, it's like I have been traumatized every single time that I tell my story in detail with a lawyer or an attorney because they need every single piece of information to be able to defend you and represent you in front of a judge, you know? And then I had to file another discrimination case back in 2018 for several protected, um, uh, protected classes that they violated to include retaliation for a prior EEO case. So that case um, is still, so I retire, right? So in total, I filed four discrimination complaints against this agency. And then whenever I was forced to retire, I got this nice letter from the agency trying to find out if I was going to continue with my case or I was going to drop the case. I mean, what were they thinking? You know, and that's and that's the level of colluding from these individuals. They try to, to get you out so you don't have a case or you, are, you run out of money or you get so mentally exhausted that you say, heck with this and move on with your life. Well, I have better news for them, you know, because I actually started getting treatment for my trauma, you know, and I started, you know, and a lot of people, and this is something that, you know, especially in the law enforcement and the military community, there is a big stigma on individuals that I call a PTSI, like post-traumatic stress injury, because it is not a disease. And we're not crazy. We just have observed or were involved or witnessed a trauma event, a catastrophic event that somehow it altered our brain cells. And that's how the trauma took place. But you know, these individuals think that unless you see somebody bleeding to death on the street or you are a witness or you're involved in a shooting, you're not traumatized. And that is not true. You know, I have been traumatized from my employment my entire career. You know, I mean, I have witnessed accidents. You know, I have, I mean, I have seen it all in law enforcement. And, you know, sadly, I think that I have been, I don't know, I want to call it trained to it, but I was never trained to deal with betrayal. I was never trained to deal with mobbing and, you know, the backstabbing from my own coworkers. That, that was, that's what hurt the most. You know, I expected it from management, but not from my own peers, especially the ones that, I have helped throughout my career, you know, with either information or maybe like I backed them up or, you know, some sort of mentoring, but I fell alone for a very long time, you know, and even though I am alone now, after I became um, a member or, you know, or I started reaching out to different social group networks you know, via Zoom or via in-person, I have realized that, no, this is a problem. This is not just me that it happened to. What has that process been like for you? So, so, or I guess maybe we should start with, 
So as it stands today, what, what's been like the outcome? Has there been an outcome? I know you, you mentioned um, you're no longer there. So like, what, what is the status with the discrimination cases and how has it affected you personally? Like, where do you feel like you are at in like the recovery process in this? Well, the discrimination cases, the first one is in an appeal process with the EEOC, right? So they don't have a deadline to give you an answer. This has been going on for the appeal was approved, I want to say December 2000, maybe 19. So we're almost going on two years. Uh, the second discrimination case um, is still at the, <laughs> at the agency level, believe it or not, and I filed it back in 2018, okay? Um, the retaliation case uh, is still on the administrative process. So the way that it works, especially for federal or em federal employees is go to the EOs or you try to handle it at the agency level, right? You go to like, for example, myself, I went to the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General. And of course they don't do anything but protect the agency. And then um, you go to the Office of Special Counsel and it's kind of like bizarre because they don't do anything regardless. It's like, I feel like they're like powerless. And then all they say is, okay, uh, we're not telling you that you don't have a case. You know, you can take it to the Mary's System Protection Board. And the problem is that you need three board members. Well, thank God that Biden nominated one and it was, um, um, I, I can't remember the word right now, but Senate, Senate confirms it, but we still need two more board members to be able to hear the three, almost 4,000 backlog of cases that are in the federal level. So what Congress is trying to do now is to find, uh, not a loophole, but trying to pass a bill that allows the employee to actually take their retaliation case to a court system, like district court or federal court. Because now the way that it is, you have to assess every single administrative process before your attorney even considers to take it to, you know, to the to a court outside the administrative process. So um, I supposed to have my last administrative uh, whistleblower retaliation case. I believe it's uh, in September. Hopefully they pass the bill before because then I can just forget about the MSPB because MSPB is not gonna do anything. They can't do anything because there's not a board. So I had to file another retaliation case because I became a whistleblower in two accidents that happened under uh, Customs and Border Protection. And there were individuals that were killed in that accident to include immigrants, immigrants from another country. So now we're talking about international law. And uh, of course the agency you know, say that they were within their right and they follow every single process. Well, kind of funny that I was a witness for the case and I was never interviewed, right? So that tells you something. 
So, uh, so I tried to, um, to add a retaliation case to my last MSPB case. And then basically the judge gave me 45 days because I didn't know if I was going to file it with the MSPB or if I was going to go on, you know, on the criminal side, because I say, okay, so if I had it to the MSPB, the only thing that they're going to do is to send it back to the agency. And then I'm going to have to go through more depositions and discovery. That's going to be another six months, nine months, a year. I say, you know what? No, I'm going to continue with my case, my retaliation case with the MSPB. And then because I was a victim of a crime within the agency, I decided to file with the FBI. And then it is a color law violation under the civil rights. So I elevated it to the Department of Justice. But the normal citizen is unaware of all this. You know, the only reason because I do is because one, I love to research. And two, because I am in law enforcement and I kind of like know the process and the systems in place and what you can do and what you cannot do, you know, following the law. And, you know, what stopped me was that whenever I filed the case at the beginning, Customs and Border Protection basically protected the management official that committed the crime to cover up and to don't have the exposure from the media. Well, that incident affected me tremendously, not only because of the incident that the management official have engaged into, but the fact that my own supervisor and my own uh, watch commander and patrol agent in charge, they basically threw me to the wolves just to protect that management official. And me, right, because I do have a lot of resiliency and I think that I get that from the military because I always have to show my soldiers that, you know, that there's always hope and there's always a way out. You know, you never show your emotions. You never show that you're, um, you know, destroyed or affected by it. I think that I have been able to survive this, but I know other coworkers that they will have committed murder, murder by suicide because they have kids, they have spouses, they need their income. You know, thank God that I'm single. I don't have any kids. I don't have a spouse that I have to support. So I was able to adjust my finances and fight this battle because I mean, this is like, like this is like David versus Goliath. You know, this is like a huge battle that I took on. You know, and whenever I actually joined, you know, Dignity Together, you know, I started realizing that you know there's a lot of people, a lot of victims just like me. I mean, I, I, I mean, now that I'm talking to you, I mean, I remember this girl in Canada, you know, and, and you listen to these stories and you, you observe these people's faces and how they were affected by it and how they're, because my life changed tremendously. I used to be a figure competitor. I gained extreme amount of weight. Um, my cortisol levels were off. My hormones were off. I ended up in the emergency room like three times with panic attacks. i very dehydrated. Uh, I couldn't concentrate. Um, I mean, I just wanted to sleep. I just wanted to sleep all the time 
just to avoid the pain that I was feeling whenever I was awake. Um, the isolation, you know, I basically, I mean, for the last couple of years, I've been driving solo, meaning I, I used to dance a lot. I don't, I don't call my friends. I don't interact with my friends. Um, I don't interact with my coworkers because it was always like, okay, so what am I going to tell them that they're going to turn around and tell management and management is going to use that against me. Um, excessive migraines. Um, I missed a lot of days at work. And then there was at one point that I exhausted all my accrued leave. So I had to actually reach out to my coworkers to see if anybody would be able to donate, you know, some of their sick leave to me. And as a matter of fact, I am thankful that, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, the same, the same watch commander that basically threw me to the wolves at the end was the same watch commander that donated tons of, of sick leave for me to be able to take time off and go and try to rehab myself. You know, and it's kind of sad because like I reach out to him now that I'm out of the workplace, because in my opinion, he was a good management official, but he had kind of like his thumb on him from the upper management and he doesn't answer my phone calls. And I'm pretty much sure I'm almost positive that management basically told him, you know, that he was not allowed to talk to me, you know, because their mantra is to try to destroy me you know, saying that all these are lies and this, that. no, they're not lies. You know, the day that I left, I actually texted some of my coworkers and I basically told them, you know, this is my last day. I would like to say goodbye or, you know, I'll see you later, you know, and there were maybe like six or seven of my coworkers that stopped by to see me before I left, you know, but of course all this is, you know, hush, hush, you know, that management doesn't see it because if they know that they came to see me, even management officials came to see me, you know, they were retaliated against them. And I tell you, I do not wish what this agency did to me, not even to my worst enemy, because I mean, it is, it is just going into disaster. What kind of, um, I'm so sorry that all that happened to you and that you've suffered from all of that. Um, what do you think that the that they as an organization suffered from just from their incompetence, their mismanagement? What do you what what kind of like um, effects did you see? I mean, you you mentioned like the disgruntled coworkers. What were what other signs did you see that this kind of behavior just was not good for the organization either? Well, there are good things that came out of it and there were bad things that came out of it. I'm gonna start with the bad ones. Uh, so the bad ones was uh, whenever I decided to be a whistleblower in July, 2019, Congress got involved. So the media got involved. So they got national attention. And then I don't know if you remember whenever the acting secretary, uh, her last name was Nelson. Uh, she got fired, basically fired from her position. Uh, then we have acting secretary uh, Macalena was fired. Uh, and then you have acting secretary Wolf, he got fired. Uh, we have the El Paso sector patrol agent in charge who got fired. Uh, 
the chief of uh, Customs and Border Protection basically was forced to retire early. Uh, but you see, whenever I say fire, these individuals get to keep their benefits, they get to keep their retirement. So, okay, so they got fired, but they get their benefits. So what's really the consequence? Media attention? Well, people forget, you know how that is. You know, there's something going on, like for example, like George Floyd. You know, the incident happened, it was all over the news and then it kind of like died down and then it was the voting election fraud. And then there's always going to be something that is going to get media attention and the citizens ears, right? So, um, but those, you know, a lot of, you know, they, the agency have lost a lot, a lot of senior agents that have the expertise and they were 100% fully trained on the old patrol. Now they're getting the new guys that, you know, I, because I used to be a police officer and I remember whenever I was a rookie, you know, and you kind of like, you know, you wanted to, you know, like to write tickets, you know, as, you know, following the law. But you know, you wanted to prove the department that you, you were worth of them hiring you. You know, and that's how the new agents in the Border Patrol are. And the problem is that most of the time they're very reckless, you know, i.e., you know, running over illegal immigrants, you know, not providing the human rights that illegal immigrants deserve by law. Uh, the asylum law is being broken. You know, so and I'm pretty sure that I can come up with, you know, other negative uh, incidents uh, to include that now they're being invested. Actually, um, the, the new secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, he's not acting. He's actually the it. Finally, we got the it. Um, he actually initiated um, an investigation within his agency itself within the departments within its agency for hate crimes because I was a victim of hate crimes. So, you know, my incident got to his attention because now Department of Justice is involved. Uh, the FBI is involved uh, because of my military background, CIA is involved. So, you know, I honestly think that they messed with the wrong individual because I am not Django, you know, uh, Whenever they say that you belong to Uncle Sam, you do belong to Uncle Sam because all the education and all the experience that I have is because the government gave it to me, you know, and it's a matter of how do I want to use it, right? Do I want to retire and become overweight and just watch popcorn and, you know, nothing about, you know, nothing with that, but I feel like I'm wasting what I have to give to the world, right? Uh, some of the good things that happen is that um, we have a new chief for Customs and Border Protection. He used to be the um, deputy chief. His name is uh, Raul Ortiz. Uh, and I have spoken with him several times on the phone. I have spoken to him via email. Uh, is he going to change the department a 180? Maybe not. But he knows about some of the issues that happen in the agency because I brought it up to him because I actually went to Congress and tried for our Congresswomen to get involved and try to get me a face-to-face -face with the one that just got fired 
or removed from his position. That was uh, Chief of Customs and Border Protection, uh, Rodney, Rodney Scott. So I tried to alert the agency. I tried to talk with the individuals at the lowest level that have the power to change things within the agency. And my chief at the sector, her name is Chief Chavez, she denied it. Congress got involved, they denied it. Congress doesn't have the jurisdiction to make the agency give me an opportunity to either talk with the Chief of Customs and Border Protection or the Secretary of Homeland Security. So basically, I have to do everything on my own. You know, take the risk and do it. And that's what it takes. It takes bold and courageous individuals that actually risk everything they have for the better, the better good of somebody else. Um, I know that they have increased their chaplains at the station level. Uh, and I call and I talk about the station because that's the, the most that I have visibility on. I know that uh, they got uh, individual that's in charge. It's like a veterans coordinator that it's in charge of mentoring agents that are either in the Army Reserves or National Guard and kind of like walk them through the process of, you know, if you go on mobilization orders or a deployment, you know, what are your benefits? Whenever you come back, you know, what reinstatement benefits you get, you know, things of that nature. Um, I have seen a lot of technology. I mean, that was funded by Congress. Uh, they got a lot of money for funding, you know, technology, i.e. sensors, uh, you know, the wall, you know, agree or disagree, you know, I am not a pro wall because I think that it violates the civil rights of uh, immigrants. Uh, it causes more money expenditures because illegal immigrants, whenever they jump the wall, they get injured and then who pays for that? Taxpayers. I do agree on the wall on certain areas of the United States, but not on the entire United States. So it depends on the AOR. You, know, you cannot treat you know, El Paso sector as you treat Tucson or you know, the northern border sector. You just can't. You know, and where I, get, I get upset is you know, um, whenever I try to talk with, uh, with the chief, uh, with, the, with the, act, the last acting secretary of, uh, of the Department of Homeland Security, you know, um, it is so political. You know, all these people care is about electing an official regarding what political party they're on. They don't care about us, the little people, the ones that are doing the work. You know, this morning, I got a text from one of my coworkers saying, you know, we're getting overrun. You know, and of course, whenever you tell the, uh, you know, whenever you tell these countries, you know, we have our open borders and we're welcome. You know, what do you expect? So, you know, there is a lot of negativity that came out from my, you know, my whistleblower and retaliation. You know, uh, I, you know, this week, actually, July the 30th, this coming week, July the 30th, I believe it was 1978, is whenever the law. The Whistleblower Protection Act was um, was passed. 
And we get these emails every single year from management stating, you know, all the protections that federal employees get if you are a whistleblower because a whistleblower is needed. But they turn around and retaliate against you. So what is it? You know, and, and I would go to my peers and they knew that I was in pain, you know, and, and I think that they reached out because they were, they were authentically worried about myself, my safety. You know, I think that they wanted, they wanted me to know that they were still there, even if they couldn't be there in front of management. And, and that kept me going, that kept me going, wanting to fight, not just for me, but for them and for all the whistleblowers in our nation that, that they risk everything, you know, even their health. Uh, but I realized that you cannot fight the system from within. You know, I, I found myself always being wrongfully written up. I was ending up in management inquiry, you know, the management inquiry team for allegations that they were false and fabricated allegations from management. And, you know, the burden of proof is on the employee, but you're talking about years of agony because once somebody make a complaint against you, you know, it, it doesn't take three months or six months. They will extend it to, to, to drain the life out of you. You know, and, uh, and we need to change that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Private Richard Holiday, but he's the soldier, he's the volunteer soldier from Fort Bliss that it's a year already that he's been missing. And there have not been no answers either from Congress or the army. And now we came to find out that he filed several IG complaints via his chain of command. So now we're asking ourselves, so was he retaliated against? You know, and, and I dig into these cases because I see my law enforcement background and because, I, I mean, I just don't want anybody, not a soul to go through what I went through because there was a year actually, uh, not this past birthday, my, my other, my, was it last year? I believe it was last year. So I reached to the, my parents don't live in my state. They, they live, you know, in Puerto Rico. And I actually reached out to my parents and I had to move them with me, you know, uh, for a year because I was afraid to get in my car. You know, in Florida, you get police officers putting drugs in, you know, in driver's purses or pockets, you know, and that, that's what I'm afraid. You know, I am afraid that somebody will fabricate a case against me just to, to say, you see, you see, it's not us, it's her. You know, I don't go anywhere by myself. Everywhere that I go, I take somebody with me. 
So at least there's a witness and my parents can be contacted, you know, and that is not a way to live that, you know, I wake up every morning, you know, very grateful that I, that I was able to see another sunrise. But you ask yourself, what is the difference between being in prison, physically in prison or being in prison in your own home? There is no difference. But you see, the American, the American citizen just doesn't understand that, you know, um, because they always think that because it's the government, right? They do everything right. They never break any laws. They never break any standard operating procedures, policies, regulations, and that is not true. That is not true. You know, right here, I'm thinking about at least ten of my friends that were retaliated because they reported something either in the military or law enforcement, i.e. local, state, or government. And, you know, I am a firm believer that one person cannot change the world, but one person can make a difference. And that's how a movement starts. I do not call myself an activist because in my mind, me, my mind, the word activist have very negative connotations because you can have a protest, a peaceful protest and can become a forceful protest, right? Like it happened at the Capitol. I like to call myself an advocate because I like to educate others on what they can do, what they cannot do following those policies, regulations, SOPs, and laws. The laws are enacted and they're passed into legislature for a reason. Now, the question is, who held these federal agencies or these corporations accountable for them breaking the laws? Okay. Um, I have reached out to the whistleblowers, uh, whistleblower uh, center. I have reached out to the Government Accountability Office. You know, I mean, I have done things that I never in my wildest dream thought of doing, but I didn't have a choice. They didn't leave me no choice. It was either end up dead in a cemetery or end up in a hospital or mental institution because they really make you believe that it's you, that you are crazy. They make you believe that you are the trouble or you know the troublemaker, and you're not. And the more that we voice our stories, you know, and my goal, like you, is to pass the Dignity at Work Act in all the fifty states, you know, because at least if we start at the state level, Congress will be able to enact a bill that the federal level will follow. But we have to follow the steps, you know. Um, I hope that the Rhode Island and the Massachusetts pass, you know, with flying colors. Um, I don't know if you if you heard the news, but the Armed Senate Committee approved the Military Justice Improvement Act to go to the Senate floor, and then it goes to the House, floor, and hopefully our president will sign it you know, before 2021, if not 2022. But it's because of whistleblowers, you know, 
we have to be empowered. We have to have that recognition from the government and from these corporations that what we're doing is within the law, that is our right, and that is the right thing to do. You know, I don't want America to be Cuba or Venezuela, you know, or Russia. You know, we have a great country. You know, we just need our, you know, both of our parties to come together for our own nation's good. Very well said. Um, I was going to ask you, like, kind of what's your take on, um, like, this whole culture in general, but I think you've kind of answered it. So I wanted to just see if you had any other um, kind of parting words on, like, what we need to do or why it's happening or um, just any sort of insights for other people who are going through something similar. Um, that have kind of helped you as you've gone through things or just, yeah, any kind of, any other parting words that you wanna leave people with? So, you know, I compare being a whistleblower kind of like the good Samaritan. Let's say that you're driving down the street and you see somebody with a, you know, it's dark at night and uh, you see somebody with a flat tire and let's just happen that the individual is a female, right? Most men will stop at, you know, even if you're not comfortable or you don't feel comfortable to go and assist, right? Because it could be an ambush or a setup or anything. I mean, the streets are very dangerous, but maybe you can park, you know, far away enough. So at least, you know, people don't run over that individual, right? So a good Samaritan will put their lives at risk to save somebody else. And that's how, and it is a personal choice, right? You have to make the decision if you want to do it or not, right? There are laws that protect you, but as we all have witnessed, those laws are broken. They have been broken for years and they have not worked. But you have to make a personal decision of because we all have a purpose on this life. And I can tell you, it's not to eat, drink, sleep, and wake up the next day and do the same thing all over again, okay? Uh, we all have a purpose. And regardless of the religion that you practice, you know, you have been given grace to do something better. Um, you have to realize that once you make the decision to be a whistleblower, you basically hit the end of the road. There's no way of going back. There's no goal. You know, you either have to go left or right and you have to make that decision. I will say document everything, document, 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 document the date that the incident happened, what the incident was, the date, the time, the location, any witnesses or individuals that may have heard it. Maybe they were not just right beside you, but they were in the vicinity because whenever there are depositions and their subpoenas, if those individuals lie on their own, that is perjury and that is a federal crime. Um, make sure that you know the state laws because in every state there are different laws regarding recording conversations, right? There's some states that you have to advise the other individual that you're recording. There's some states that as long as you're part of the conversation and you're recording, you're okay. So you have to go to your state laws and find that out. 
um, I will say in the workplace, I found myself watching myself every single time that I talk, either with a management official or with a peer, because you never know who is recording. And the problem with the agency is that even if it's against the law, they're violating the law, they still will do it. And it's up to the judge if they want to bring that into evidence or not. I will say educate yourself on all the policies, the standard operating procedures, the regulations, the laws, i.e. state, local, uh, and federal laws, and make sure that you understand that HR, human resources, is not your friend. They are there to protect the agency. Uh, the union is supposed to have your back, but in my case, it didn't because the president and one of the stewards have a different agenda. And the agenda was not to protect me, but to protect the agency to further their own agenda. Uh, something that even myself have to work on is self-care. You know, we help everybody and we're very good at it, but we forget about ourselves. And we kind of like have to have a timeout and take care of ourselves our spiritual, our mental, and our physical state of mind. Something that have helped me have been uh, increase and work my spiritual growth. Regarding the religion that you practice, you have to be patient because this process is not gonna take a year, two years. This process, as you have seen, have taken me almost my entire career. Uh, social support groups are good. Um, they are not good at helping you with the outcome, but they're helping you to heal and understand what have happened to you and to uh, give you the reassurance that you're not by yourself and that there are other people that are or have encountered the same things that you have and they're going through the same process and realize that we, this is a journey. You know, whenever you have a trauma to the brain, you know, there's no pill that is going to heal you from it. There's ways that you're gonna be perfect and you're gonna think that you have healed from the trauma and the next day you get up because you had a nightmare because you were traumatized by something that you saw on the street or something that somebody said, and then you're back at square one. But there's a lot of tons, there's a, there's a lot of coping mechanisms that you can use throughout the day uh, to move forward. Because like I said, this is, a, this is a journey on a healing process. And now we see you know, a lot of first responders being affected by it you know, because of protests or incidents that are happening on the street and everybody gets affected different. You know, you may be involved in a shooting and not because your peer didn't get affected. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get affected because we're different people. You know, we have different brains, we have different hearts and we were not created the same. I mean, each of us have a different DNA and what affects one person one way is not going to affect another person the same way. And the recovery journey is not gonna be the same length. So I would say to be patient, 
But I also say that you have to make that decision that whenever you look in the mirror at the end of the day, you're going to be happy with yourself because that's who you need to answer to. Not your boss, not your peer, not Congress, you know, not any law enforcement agency, but yourself. Because I tell you, if you're supposed to have done the right thing and you don't do it, it will haunt you. It will haunt you every single day until you rectify what you should have done the first time. So those are my words. Thank you so much for that. I love listening to your insights because it's just so spot on with you know, my own experience, what I hear from other people. Thank you so much, Delirious, for, for sharing your story, sharing your insights. I appreciate it so much. Um, yeah, thank you for being here and, and for- Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Screw thank the you. Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org slash targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.